In this episode of 92i Talks, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd brings her trademark acerbic analysis and wry wit to election 2016 in a discussion with Arianna Huffington about Dowd's latest book, The Year of Voting Dangerously, The Derangement of American Politics. It was recorded on October 24, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here with Maureen. Maureen and I have been friends for many, many years, and she's just as witty, acerbic, and amazing in private as she is in print. <laughs> and um, I've basically had, have had a girl crush on her, which makes me <laughs> just one of millions. And as we're backstage, having, you know, the kind of green room girl talk, you know, which is a little different than locker room talk. (laughs) I just wanted to let you know that this book is an absolute must. Do not go into the voting booth without reading it. Uh, the year of voting dangerously. And uh, of course, you have an opportunity to get it signed by Maureen when we finish our conversation. So Maureen, let's start. What the hell is going on? (laughs) I know, you know, I've covered um, nine presidential campaigns in in high heels and high dudgeon. And uh, this is the wildest, because uh, as Stefan says on Saturday Night Live, it has everything. (laughs) It has Russian hackers, white supremacists, (laughs) dueling Kardashian-like Twitter feuds, dueling federal investigations, small hands. And for the first time, the um, Republican nominee has been renounced not by one, but by two candy companies. So first, Skittles, uh, because his son compared Skittles to refugees, and then Tic Tacs. (laughs) I'm sure you all know why. And uh, so anyway, I've I've seen some crazy things, but this is absolutely the craziest. In fact, I used to call political strategists to help me analyze campaigns, and now I call shrinks. (laughs) (laughs) And you've been really covering Trump ever since he was flirting with presidential politics in the 1990s. So is there anything he has said or done this time round that has really surprised you? Well, it was funny because I had even forgotten how long ago I started covering him. I thought it was, uh, in the book, I talk about, you know, going out with him on one of his first presidential forays in 99. And I asked him, why do you think people would vote for you for president? And he replied, because I get big ratings on Larry King. (laughs) And because a lot of guys hit on Melania. So even then, he was, they were dating then but she was with us. And even then he had that ego arithmetic. But the funny thing was, I was going over even older stories I did about Trump, and I hadn't realized I interviewed him on the phone in the late 80s when Mikhail Gorbachev came to America. And so Trump went to a meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev, and then I called Trump and interviewed him, and he said, well, when I went in, I was really wary about Gorbachev and Russia. 
But when I came out, I felt differently. So I'm thinking this is the beginning of the Siberian candidate thing. <laughs> because he said he felt differently because the Russians had said to him that they really love Trump Tower and he should come to Moscow and build hotels. So there was an earlier compliment that got him completely on the side of the Russians that we didn't even know about. But do you think he really wants to be president or is he deliberately self-destructing? This is, you know, the reporters... Since you've been talking to shrinks, we yeah, want yeah. to know. Well, the reporters at the Times argue about this among ourselves all the time because maybe you guys will think this is, a, you know, a distinction without a difference, but uh, there are some reporters who think he's deliberately self-destructing, and I think that it's not deliberate. He just... <laughs> <laughs> He's doing it without realizing. No, that he has certain uh, personality traits having to do with his clinical narcissism <laughs> that causes him to behave in a very destructive way. And it's funny because when, you know, when I've talked to shrinks about this, I talked to one in San Francisco because now you know, I feel like it's the national pastime to analyze <laughs> Donald Trump. So this San Francisco shrink said that, I said, what's going to happen next? And she said in the last couple weeks of the campaign, he would revert to some childlike state where the original wound existed. And I said, I don't want to see that. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to go there. <laughs> but you have actually been phone pals. You, is his phone talk different than his locker room talk? I wouldn't say we were pals. I went and interviewed him in Trump Tower a, a few times, and I interviewed him on the phone a few times. And, you know, my friends would get mad and they wouldn't read the column when there were interviews, but I still think it's good to talk to people and see what they say. I mean, I felt like I got to ask him a lot of tough questions. I got to ask him if he kept Hitler books by the bed. That was a tough one. <laughs> In fact, you know, that's a very good uh, transition point because you mentioned his early love of Russians and uh, Gorbachev. And so is he a Manchurian candidate sent by Bill Clinton to destroy the Republican Party? Or is he, or is he a Siberian candidate controlled by Vladimir Putin? And, and what is the, really the short-fingered Bulgarian thinking? Well... <laughs> So there are two theories. One is the one we went over, that he's a Siberian candidate controlled by Putin because he doesn't really have an ideal ideology or issues. He just has his ego, so everything is subjugated to his ego. So if Putin compliments him, then the whole Republican Party has to change its historical stance and <laughs> ideology toward Russia. It's just the craziest thing. So you see them all on TV twisting and turning to try and, and reconcile what Trump has said, which is you know, that he loves Putin with you know, the evil empire stance. So then the other theory, and I think maybe we're all more conspira conspiracy-minded because Trump is, so the other theory is that um, he is the Manchurian candidate because Bill Clinton talked to him shortly before he got in the race. And I've been reporting on this, so there are several different versions of this that I've done a magazine piece on. But Bill apparently was very encouraging to him, and he took it as a sign he should jump in. And I've been talking to Bill's 
you know, aides and friends, and they say, oh, no, you know, Bill is brilliant, but he's not Frank Underwood from House of Cards. <laughs> he couldn't possibly have seen that Trump would destroy the Republican Party and make it easy for Hillary, but I don't know. I think maybe Bill could have. <laughs> But one more thing about Putin, because um, Trump has been all over the map on every issue except Putin. He has unswervingly supported Putin. He's even said now he may want to meet with him before the election. So is there something beyond simply his ego being um, stroked? No, I think Trump, I think that... Um, his, uh, one of his biographers, Michael D'Antonio, said that Trump's uh, operative characteristic is that he can't stand humiliation, that every rejection is a small death to him. Well, Even then November like on the debate is going stage. to be a lot of fun, right? <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right. So he, and that's why, you know, he has this, um, his whole campaign revolves around humiliation, like angry white men who feel humiliated. And when I look back, the first time I actually interviewed him in person was at the Republican convention in 88. And he was saying then that everyone wanted him to run, the polls were amazing, but that he, um, he did not want to run uh, even though if he did run, he would, he would take care of all these countries that were ripping us off. So the alt-right language and Trump's language have always been about America being humiliated and Trump himself can't bear to be humiliated. So in all the debates, Hillary has been working with a team of psychologists. And at first I was dubious about that, but they have really helped her. And she immediately in the first debate went for humiliation. She said to him, you're, you know, you're not such a rich guy. Your father was the rich one, you know, which he hates, that thing that he's not a self-made billionaire. And so you can see him kind of steaming for a little while, and then he'll burst out, as he did with Nasty Woman, you know? So, yeah, so it was very easy for Hillary and the psychologist to figure out how to get him unnerved. And, but even before his recent implosion, he liked to brag that he only got four hours sleep. <laughs> now we're coming into your territory. Come, well, you know, he's, <laughs> such a, he's such an amazing target for my territory because he really exemplifies the worst symptoms of chronic sleep deprivation. Yeah. Because <laughs> when you're up at 3 a.m. tweeting about a former Miss Universe gaining 12 pounds, you know you're not getting enough sleep. Right. <laughs> You know, in fact, you know, Maureen, I want everybody to get more sleep except Donald Trump. <laughs> because the less sleep he gets, the more he's going to be imploding. And uh, I, in the end, I think when um, he's, uh, I hope, um, out of our public life, um, if there's going to be one piece of value left, which is that mothers can point to him when their children refuse to go to sleep and say, look, if you don't go to sleep, <laughs> you'll end up like Donald Trump. So Trump tweeted that you were boring, not to mention wacky, crazy, and a neurotic dope. And it got 21,000 likes. He's also twisted things about me, but did that hurt your feelings? Um, <laughs> well, I, I was very... Um, 
deeply disappointed because uh, I thought that since I'd known him for a couple decades, he could take a little more time and think of a good nickname for me, like Pocahontas or uh, Sleepy Eyes, which he calls Chuck Todd. And instead, he just gave me a generic one that all the other female journalists have, which these are always the same words he uses, wacky, crazy, and neurotic dope. So I realized <laughs> then I wasn't special to him. <laughs> so let's, let's go to Hillary for a minute. We'll, we'll come back to Trump, don't worry. Um, she often talks about her sexist treatment. But is she getting treated in a sexist way? What do you think? Well, I think that the election of the first African-American president unleashed a lot of racism. And I think that the first woman running on a major party ticket unleashed a lot of sexism. And you know, if you've ever watched a Trump rally on YouTube or the, the right-wing uh, uh, station, not stations, what do you call it, on internet, the Carry It Live, and you look at the comments and the scroll next to it, it just makes me want to run and volunteer for Hillary. But then I snap out of that. <laughs> um, so yeah, there is a lot of ugliness unleashed. And you see it in Trump's campaign as well. But I think that Hillary is better off if she follows um, Barack Obama's lead. Because he would always, when he could, ignore racism and not you know, use it as any kind of uh, excuse for anything or bring it up too much. And I think that's a good way to treat it because of course it's there, but it's better, you know, not to talk about it, I think. But what is interesting is that even though Hillary is making history as the first woman running for president on a major ticket, uh, nobody's questioning whether she's tough enough. Right. In fact, to the contrary, they're questioning sometimes uh, whether she is, as, as Trump has, has basically alluded, a military adventurous. Right. Well, in some ways, yeah, the Republicans um, shouldn't be so upset that they don't have a candidate, really, because in some ways she is a good GOP candidate, <laughs> um, because they reverse positions on some things. And Hillary is the one who cozies up to hedge funds and... Um, you know, she is the one who's sort of more of an interventionist. And I think it was a really big shock to her that young women weren't excited about her historic candidacy and that, in fact, Bernie Sanders, who was this cranky 74-year-old loner in the Senate, was the chick magnet. <laughs> I mean, and so now women are passionate but in the last two weeks, but they're more passionate against Donald Trump really than for, they're passionate for Hillary as a way to be against Donald Trump. But you've actually written that Donald Trump is really a boon to women. So I presume you're not referring to women who, who are within grabbing range. <laughs> so how is well, he a boon? Well, he's a boon to women because for two centuries, you know, women were not considered suitable for leadership positions or even to vote because uh, people thought that you know, they were too, uh, they would be too volatile and hysterical <laughs> and, you know, gossipy and shrewish. And then there is someone like that in the race, but it's not the woman. So, <laughs> so I think he's retiring all these uh, stereotypes that should have been retired a long time ago. And he has a little sewing circle of uh, guys. <laughs> 
Christy and Newt and Rudy around him who are very gossipy and mean. Let's actually talk about all those Republicans around him because um, th there's been so much uh, about Trump that has been racist and sexist and xenophobic and generally incoherent, but the one, <laughs> but the one thing that really upset his sewing circle um, was the locker room talk um, on the bus. I mean, was this really the worst thing he has said? I mean, worse than banning an entire religion from the United States, 1.6 billion people? Uh, well, it went into the area of sexual assault, which is a, a much darker, sicker area than he had. You know, before that, he just reminded me of, uh, as far as women, he reminded me of a guy who walked out of a steam bath at the Sands in Las Vegas with Frank Sinatra in 1959, talking about broads and skirts. You know, he seemed caught in a time warp, but he hadn't talked about the issue of sexual assault hadn't come up. So then once that came up, and uh, you know, the Times wrote about it, and he, his lawyer sent a letter to the Times saying, we're gonna sue you, and um, David McCraw, who's a very cool Times lawyer, wrote him back, and it was kind of like, I'm sorry, but uh, Mr. Trump has already confessed to these crimes. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was a pre-confession. So when David McCraw walked through the newsroom, he got an ovation from the reporters. Um, he went, as you've said, from uh, being a fun huckster in New York to being a kind of Hitler on the campaign trail. That, that's not a very nice progression, is it? What, what can happen after November 8th? Where does he go? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I asked him about this. I said, you don't seem to be... I mean, his former image in New York was like sort of buffoony, but also... Uh, kitschy, more um, like a cheeky brio. It wasn't, it wasn't this dark, bigoted, you know, sexist, racist image. And I said, why, why have you gone down all these dark roads? You had a perfectly fine image in New York. Why didn't you campaign as that person? And he said, well, I guess, you know, I went to number one that way, and then I just thought I should keep doing what I was doing. And I also asked him about the violence at his rallies, and he goes, oh, I think it adds a little excitement, you know? So I just think he, when he came to the Times endorsement uh, session, he was saying, I would be the kind of president the Times would love, and I, I'm flexible, and he was sort of signaling several months ago that, you know, he wasn't, these were opening negotiating bids that he was using in the Republican primary. But I think what he failed to understand is that you become what you say at the microphone. And I think he and Ivanka have been in denial, but I think maybe they're just beginning to realize now that they have really trashed their brand. And that brand, when they get back to New York, I don't think that brand is just ever gonna be the same. Um, but let's go into a negative fantasy for a minute. <laughs> yes, let's, let's. let's imagine <laughs> Donald Trump in the White House. Um, <laughs> what would the first 100 days be like? Um, I think it would be like a daycare center. Uh, <laughs> a, a federally funded daycare center. 
uh, and he would be up all night tweeting mean things about Paul Ryan. Um, you know, it's interesting because at one point his son went to John Kasich and was saying, well, you could be vice president and um, then my dad could just be kind of hovering above. And I realized that he wanted to do the same thing with the White House that he does in his business now, where he stopped being a builder and is a licensor. And so he just wanted to use his name and then have someone else be the president. And they <laughs> denied that, but I think probably that's true, that that's what he had in mind. But I think it's beginning to sink in that his brand was about winning and now it's about losing and is tarred with all of these really negative things. And, you know, they launched that um, alt-right TV station of his on Facebook tonight. They're starting with an interview with Kellyanne Conway. So <laughs> I think they will have to do that because there's nothing that Christy and Newt and Rudy and Donald are going to be able to do after this except that. And Roger Ailes. So, the, so they'll have Roger Ailes run the new network? Maybe. On I Facebook. mean, I don't think Trump has put that much time into thinking about it, but I don't think he really. You know, it's interesting because one of his friends said to me, Donald always creates a trapdoor for himself. And he's done that with the rigging thing. He's, you know, in the same way, Hillary called him on this on the last debate, in the same way when he didn't win an Emmy for The Apprentice, he was saying, oh, the Emmys are rigged. And so now it's democracy is rigged. So he has his trapdoor. I just think it hasn't quite sunk in yet, or maybe this week, that he he can't get out the trap door back to where he was. I just feel like that exit is closed. So moving on to Saturday Night Live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are good friends with Larry David, with Alec Baldwin, with Kate McKinnon. What do they say? How are they reacting to Trump's trashing uh, Saturday Night Live and them as boring, etc.? Well, I emailed Alec the other day when Trump trashed him as boring and the show was failing or whatever. And I said, don't feel bad. He called me boring too. That's, you know, a sign of success or something. And Alec emails back and he goes, I don't feel bad. Trump is our best writer. <laughs> <laughs> it could be fun though, if he were the only fun thing about him being president that he would be live tweeting every kind of Saturday Night Live episode for four years. Um, back to Hillary. We're going to be going back and forth, okay? So how did Hillary, who started out as an idealistic young lawyer on the Watergate impeachment committee, end up getting compared to Nixon um, as being paranoid, press averse, secretive? What is that transition about? You know, well, in my book, I start covering her in uh, 92, when she is running as the wife of Bill. And when I went back, I was amazed at how positive and supportive my pieces were, even as a news reporter. Because I realized it's, it's really hard for women who have the same educational credentials and some of the same qualifications as their president, as their husband, like Hillary and Michelle, to then get put into this little antiquated satin box called the first lady thing. And I think Hillary chafed against it constantly and she wanted, she wanted it to be called first mate. She didn't like the term first lady. And 
and on that campaign, she got some stationery, I remember, that um, had dropped the rod. Um, it just said Hillary Clinton, and she just sent it back right away. She, she was really concerned about what it would do to her identity. And I reread all my stuff, and I went and read the other biographies of her, trying to figure out where, you know, Trump has his wall, and then Hillary has an emotional wall, which you can also see reflected in the leaked emails from her staff. But, you know, I tried to figure out where it came from. She had a rough time in Arkansas, certainly, and then she got to Washington and had another rough time, and there was Whitewater. And George Stephanopoulos said if he could have a genie in a bottle and change anything about their time in Washington, it would be to persuade Hillary to just give the Whitewater Papers to the Washington Post, because he said the story would have been done in a week. There wasn't enough there for it to keep going. But because she wouldn't allow that and was defensive and secretive, she, it, it kind of ended up cascading into seven or eight federal investigations and then impeachment and $80 million in taxpayer money. And you saw a little microcosm of it with the pneumonia story where, of course, you're going to get sick when you have a schedule like those two, you know, and they're both around 70 and I think they have amazing stamina. But anyway, so, you know, instead of just saying she was sick, she was trying to pretend she was well and not telling the press what was happening after the feigning thing. And David Axelrod said the problem is not the health, it's the stealth, the allergy to transparency. So that, you know, she just got in a bad um, series of things, like with healthcare, where she's too secretive and defensive. So she has this great idealistic public service side, but then she has a side where she makes decisions from a place of fear and a darker place, and that side tends to trip up the other side. So hopefully she would maybe drop the paranoid side, although I've never seen anyone get less paranoid in the White House, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so what will her, her first 100 days be like? Oh, that's interesting. I don't know, you know, um, I talked to uh, a senator the other night who's close to her who said that he thinks she'll do better than President Obama because she understands you've got to work Congress and put some elbow grease into it. And as a senator, she learned how to be deferential to them and, you know, that that's what they like. And he thinks that she'll be able to work with Mitch McConnell, but Mitch McConnell is planning still to be very obstructionist. So I'm not sure how that will go. And also the Republican Party at that point will be divided into two parties and kind of a mess. So I think it'll be really interesting to watch. But there is one column I'd love to, to read from you, and that's um, Donald Trump's concession speech. <laughs> Can yeah. you please write it? Maybe Sunday. Sunday, that would be perfect. Don't you want to read that? <laughs> okay, here's another question. What's up with Melania? <laughs> um, I didn't, so she was on that first trip we took in 99 as... Uh, the girlfriend. The girlfriend. And, um, you know, she, I found her very lovely. I, I thought she was a very cool woman. She doesn't talk much, you know, and um, 
I've been told by people who go out to dinner with them that she doesn't talk much at dinner. She lets Donald hold the floor all night and talk. And I think that's part of his problems at the debate, because he really seems thrown by the idea that <laughs> a woman is kind of chastising him and talking about substance and you know telling him he's wrong about stuff, because I, I'm not sure he's experienced that in <laughs> Trump world his alternative universe. But do you think she, ha she doesn't look happy at the moment of the campaign trail? I mean, even before the recent revelations, does she really want him to run? Um, I'm not sure she's that into politics. She disappeared for a while after the convention thing. But I can say one really nice thing about her because my friend Andre Leontali uh, went shopping for a wedding dress with her and was, because it was going to be on the cover of Vogue, he was the stylist for the wedding. And so he went to all the great fashion houses with her and I asked him what she was like and he said she is the most well-moisturized woman he has ever met. <laughs> <laughs> and the best groomed everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> So go, Melania. <laughs> so how do you think Bill Clinton would do as a first lad? Oh, well, you know, it's funny because when I went to do a column about how the Clintons were faring in Hollywood uh, during the primaries, uh, Hollywood was completely obsessed. They don't, you know, Hillary's fine. They're going to support her and vote for her. But they were completely obsessed with the Bill Clinton as first lad uh, story. And it's funny because... When Sarah Palin hit the scene, Hollywood went nuts because it had never occurred to them that you could have a beautiful young woman in the role of Dick Cheney. So <laughs> once they got that in their heads, you know, you've seen Veep and all this other stuff came out of that. So there was a movie um, in the, I think it was the 50s, with Fred McMurray and Polly Bergen called Flowers for My President, where he was the first first lad, and you know he had all these um, kind of uh, problems adjusting, his masculinity was hurting and stuff. But I think Hillary has said that Bill could handle the economy, and Chelsea could handle the hostessing duties, and she herself would continue to pick the china. But, but I think that she should let Bill do the duties exactly as other first ladies have had to do them, including Michelle, because, yeah, because that's the only way that it will be underscored how antiquated the job is. If you see a man doing it, then they might modernize it. Yes. Maybe including making appearances with uh, Tim Kaine's wife. <laughs> yeah, I actually think, uh, you know, he will have a good time with it. And um, I, I don't think he'll be threatened by it at all. I don't think. So how did Trump and Clinton go from being golf buddies to where they are now? And is that a relationship broken forever? Uh, I, w I would say yes. <laughs> I'd be really surprised if Ivanka and Chelsea can go back. I mean, too much, too much ugly stuff has been said. But, um, you know, it's funny because they used to, when Bill got to New York, you know, he kind of was in um, 
not that good standing because of the Mark Rich pardon and some other things that had happened. So he was having a hard time. He got rejected by several golf clubs in Westchester. So Trump happened to own a golf club that he was rebuilding. So I think he kind of rebuilt it like fast so that he could invite Bill to play and then they were kind of hanging out. And, uh, you know, in some ways they're similar except for substance. <laughs> but they used to like junk food and they both cheat at golf a little and they would talk about women and stuff. But, um, you know, Bill, I think, is his friends say that he's furious that uh, only Trump would have dragged back yes. things like the blue dress and bring, who, I mean, who would bring Bill's accusers to a debate and try and put them in the family box. I mean, it's beyond imagination. That was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. So apparently Bill Clinton is very angry because all that stuff was long forgotten and only Trump would drag it all back. Because Trump basically is an emotional sociopath. So he was friends, he really admired Hillary and he really liked Bill, but when they were in the way of him winning, he didn't hesitate to go to the lowest, you know, common denominator. So Trump and the media, you know, I think when the history of this campaign is written, the media will have a big responsibility for where we are now. And I felt that from the beginning, that's where the Huffington Post would refuse to normalize him. We first covered him in the entertainment section. Then we covered him with a, an editor's note appended, reminding our readers constantly of who he is. And now we see, of course, everybody in the media has turned on him and has realized that this is not just Ted Cruz. You know, this is not just a Republican with whom you may disagree with his positions, but he's not unstable. He's not going to basically be a real threat to the Republic and to the world. So, what would have happened if um, the media had actually refused to normalize him earlier? Well, I think that some in the media thought Trump would be better than Ted Cruz because he didn't really mean it. You know, he was just saying this stuff to get where he wanted to go. But I also think that, you know, I can tell from my own little basket of deplorables, my <laughs> family, my conservative family, <laughs> That part of it is that some people on the left, you know, Matt Taibbi wrote this in Rolling Stone, really want censorship. They do not, and I could tell a lot of my friends didn't want to read interviews with Trump. They basically wanted him censored. And I think that, you know, for people, so basically what they want is like Trump censored and a free pass for Hillary. But I think if you want to be the most powerful person in the world, you have to have scrutiny. And she didn't have a press conference for about 250 days, and that's not good for her. And that's not good for us or democracy. And when you read um, her campaign staff's emails, they say, you know, they worry about the same things that we do. They worry that she doesn't apologize. They worry that you know, she didn't get on top of the email thing. They, they are constantly trying to script spontaneity for her. So Neera Tandon wrote an email and she said, let's have a late summer party where Hillary holds a beer and dances and then we'll let it go viral. And then they scripted her off the record conversations with reporters, including 
and hear you smile. So, so, but to get back to Trump, you know, I think that the Washington Post, David Fahrenthold on the corruption of the Trump Foundation and the New York Times has done really excellent work. And if you want to know who Donald Trump is, you just have to Google. But a lot of people like my siblings, you know, Hillary's closing line is, I'm the only thing standing between you and the apocalypse, or you and the abyss. But my siblings see Hillary Clinton as the abyss. So if you you know, they know, they understand Donald Trump's problems, but they have their own reasons for wanting to vote Republican because they're Republican. So I think some on the left thought that the media wasn't explaining who Donald Trump is, but I think to a large degree they did explain, but the other side has their own reasons. And, you know, Donald Trump, the media, you know, after... Trump had a, a press conference on the birther issue at, at the, uh, his new hotel in Washington, which is um, uh, our old post office building. And so the media came and they you know, kept the camera trained for an hour and a half and then finally had like 15 seconds on the birther thing. And they all came out and said they'd been played. And because he, he made them go on a tour of the thing. But my attitude is, if they didn't know at that point that Donald Trump was going to make them do an infomercial for his new hotel, then they really weren't paying attention. <laughs> so your siblings, actually, your brother and sister, have essays in this Oh, book. yeah, they have essays explaining uh, themselves. Ex explaining why, <laughs> why they're Trump supporters. But a lot has changed since you wrote the book and since they wrote their right, essays. So right. Um, are they still voting for him? Yeah, I emailed them today to find out because I knew I was going to have to tell you guys. And so my <laughs> sister is kind of like, well, I'm praying on it, but I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> and my brother is like, yeah, because he really doesn't want Hillary. But it does, I think that oftentimes liberals, unlike conservatives, want to hear how the other side is thinking. I feel like conservatives often just want their opinion echoed back. So I think, you know, if you read their essays, you can see how Paul Ryan is thinking if you could talk to Paul Ryan, if he wasn't muzzled. You can get a sense of that. And I think it's very interesting. So you've, you've said that um, Donald is the king of winging it and Hillary is the queen of homework. And you and I were talking the other day and I told you how I have to prepare for to interview you. And you said, no, you don't. I said, I do because I, I always prepare. You know, I'm like, so I kind of identify with Hillary. I don't know what, this is like a woman thing or the idea of winging it the way Trump does seems like absolutely foreign. I know, it's funny, you know, sometimes the people I've interviewed who are most tortured about running for president are the children of immigrants, like Colin Powell and Maria Cuomo, when I interviewed them. They just weren't sure they were worthy. They were so amazed that they had gotten as far as they had. And then the people who never worry about it are, are people like W and Dan Quayle and Sarah Palin. And they didn't care what they didn't know. And they didn't know a lot. <laughs> And Trump is the same way, you know, it's like he doesn't care. He goes into these debates and you think, I mean, if I were Trump, I would hire a coach and be studying 12 hours a day 
And he just never did that. He would have his press secretary, Hope Hicks, in the morning print out the 30 top articles about him. And then he would read the articles about himself, and then he'd look for himself on TV, and then he'd look for polls about himself. <laughs> and, you know, it was just like this incestuous amplification of the narcissist pool. So, yeah, it's a very strange thing, but sometimes that has to do with um, the way they're brought up, where they just think they don't think they need to know more. It's a, it, it is a weird thing. But even for a narcissist, I was surprised that the way he acted at the Al Smith dinner and the way he bombed, because he should have known that he would have bombed if he acted that way. And wouldn't he want to be applauded? I mean, what is the psychology there? I don't know. You know, I always think that humor speeches are an amazing way to learn about a politician because even though oftentimes someone else is writing them, you still can learn a lot. Like Bill Clinton kind of couldn't get the hang of the White House Correspondents' Dinner humor speech till the very last one. The others, the first seven, were sort of defensive and self-pitying, which doesn't work in humor as well as, you know, self-deprecation. And yeah, it felt like Kellyanne Conway had written the first part of Trump's Al Smith thing, and then Steve Bannon had <laughs> written the last five minutes or something, because he got so harsh. But, you know, that was a very interesting scene, because as they said at that dinner, he was the kid from Queens who came to Oz and made it big and wanted to get the respect of New York society. And then here was the New York society media Boy and wealth elite, and they were booing him over and over and over. And so to me, that was the kind of moment where it hit him that his brand is never gonna be the same, because he kind of fled the dinner then, and Hillary hung out for another 20 minutes talking to people. But why didn't he realize that before? You know, it was not difficult to... Are you, are you saying he's self-aware, Ariana? <laughs> Is that your point? No, I'm saying if you... It's like knowing the venue and knowing who is going to be there and knowing what happens at the dinner doesn't require an enormous amount of self-awareness. Well, um, yeah, I think he has run the most spectacularly unself-aware campaign in the history of politics. So this was just one more example. You know, you had this... Um, moment in the book when you wrote about um, how George W. H. W. had written to you over the years, including a note where he said, I like you, please don't tell anyone, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is kind of uh, really echoes the, the note that Hillary posted on her Instagram where George, uh, where George Bush left the bill when he got to the White House, a little note for right. them, kind of wishing them well. And, do you think what Trump has brought into American politics has made us all nostalgic for a different kind of politician, a different kind of era? Yeah, I think that's why President Obama's uh, numbers keep shooting up, because people realize, you know, there's no 
shadows about ethics or sex and anything, and, and they're looking at Trump and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, we didn't appreciate what we had here. And the same, they're reevaluating George H. W. Bush's uh, administration and realizing, you know, that kind of civility and bipartisanship may be lost forever. And he literally could not fathom, even before this campaign, he couldn't fathom Ted Cruz's Thunderdome, where Ted Cruz was trying to burn down the Capitol he was working on. Uh, the former President Bush didn't get that at all. And I went down to have lunch with him in 2011, and he, you know, this was way before Donald Trump considered running. And I, I said, how do you feel about President Obama? And he said he, he really liked him and that President Obama kept him in the loop. And then I said, what about Bill Clinton? And he said he loved Bill Clinton and that Bill Clinton was the, um, was the uh, brother from another mother in <laughs> the Bush family. And then I said, well, Donald Trump is conducting this birther campaign, what do you think of him? And he goes, Donald Trump is an ass. <laughs> and, that, and then he had to watch this guy destroy his dream of seeing Jeb be president. And I can't even imagine how painful that was. It got so painful, his friends wouldn't bring it up when they talked to him. And he was throwing a shoe at the TV when um, Trump came on TV, he was throwing a shoe at it. So that was just a very painful twist for that family. But, um, you know, for me, the only comfort is that my Thanksgivings are really rough because um, <laughs> of, you know, the difference in politics. But the Bushes are going to have a rougher Thanksgiving this year because Billy Bush is going to have a lot of explaining <laughs> to do about why he did not drop that tape on a table at Kennebunkport last February yeah. when it could have helped Jeb, his cousin. Mm. <laughs> I haven't that. <laughs> History would have been very different. Yeah. So do you think as a result of um, the Trump debacle, will Obama's legacy be stronger than it would have been otherwise? Yeah, I think everybody is really appreciating. You know, I went to Cuba with um, the Obamas, and, uh, you know, you're just very proud of them as a family when you travel with them, because they're so classy and elegant, and the girls are amazing. <laughs> and they're clearly such amazing parents. And so, you know, they just are, you just feel good about how they represent the country. And, you know, so we were landing in Cuba and Donald Trump is tweeting that the plane should be turned around because Raul Castro wasn't at the airport to greet Obama. So, you know, yeah, I, th I just think that he, uh, in terms of not having any shadows, that anyone had to worry about is such a great exemplar for this country and that when, when people see the contrast, it's really striking. So we have a few questions on the same theme uh, from, from you to Maureen. Basically, what is going to happen after November 8th? If, uh, don't you love the way we talk to her like she's the Delphic Oracle? 
uh, and she knows exactly what's going to happen, and so we are asking her, uh, you know, will uh, Trump build a movement? Uh, will his uh, new television station become like the new Fox? What's going to happen? Are you worried about him fermenting his stability? Yeah, I think the stain from Trump on the Republican Party will last a long time, and the fact that people didn't renounce him. But nobody, now, don't get excited, because most people don't agree with me, but I think he'll disappear like a fiery orange comet hitting the ocean. <laughs> I, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't really have any foothold in politics, you know? It, to me, it's like murder on the Orient Express. Everybody has a knife out for him. The Republicans do, the Democrats do. I think the media is sick of him. So everybody wants him gone. I can't, I just don't know where he would really, yeah, he could have a TV station with the alt-right, you know, and flirting with white supremacists. He can go around and make speeches. But the people who would come to you know, speeches, if he gave them, will not be the people who can afford to buy his products. So again, there's like a real mismatch there. Um, I, I do not see him being a force in politics. I mean, maybe when Hillary does something big or makes a mistake, Access Hollywood will go ask him a question, but I don't see it. So a question from someone who clearly follows you closely. In 2005, in answering the question, what is your greatest achievement in the Vanity Fair Proust questionnaire, you replied, covering six presidential campaigns in heels. Um, <laughs> how would you answer that question today? Well, actually, my greatest achievement was getting my mom out of a nursing home after she broke her neck, but um, that's the one I'm most proud of. <laughs> what did you do? Nothing, it's just hard. You know, there's a lot of inertia in nursing homes. You've just got to really work hard on that. Um, what would be now? I would still say that, my mom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you and I agree on that. So, um, one last question from the audience and one last question from me. Um, do you think Hillary will make a good president? You know, okay, I wish you guys hadn't asked that, whoever asked that, because it makes me feel like, like I'm not sure about what I've done with my career, because, um, you know, I quote in the introduction Harry Truman saying, you never know how a man, a man in those days, will accept the responsibility of being president. But, you know, as hard as we try to help you help pull back the curtain and be watchdogs and help you see what's really going on as opposed to what all these highly paid spinners are saying. You know, it's just hard because I spent two years covering W and he talked about having a humble, having a humble foreign policy and being bipartisan. And if 9-11 happened, maybe he would have, you know, done that, but after 9-11, so you never know what historical event is going to happen, how it will intersect, interact with their gremlins, like when W was sitting there reading my, my pet goat and he heard that news, the look in his eyes is so scared. It's like the whole 
uh, bill is coming due for him kind of, you know, wasting a lot of his life and not being serious. And he's very insecure and malleable at that moment. And that's how Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld were able to maneuver him. So who can predict these things? Then with, with President Obama, I spent two years on the road with him. And, you know, this remarkable, magical Luke Skywalker had the force, and then he gets in the White House, and it turns out he doesn't really like politics. <laughs> and I never, ever could have predicted that. So now I just feel like it's really hard to tell, because you just don't know how the White House, you know, a girlfriend of mine who works for Obama says it's like being in a submarine, working there. You don't know how people will, I even asked Trump about this <laughs> in one of the interviews. I said, you're a clinical narcissist, People tend to have narcissistic explosions when they get in the White House because basically all they do is take your picture all day long and put it up on every wall in the White House and people are sycophants. So if, you have, if you're a narcissist and you have a narcissistic explosion in the White House, think how scary that is. But you just don't know, you know, and you see this in other professions where... Uh, somebody will get the top job and instead of relaxing and savoring the confidence that should give you, they get imposter syndrome or they start to self-destruct and you're thinking, you have the job, why can't you just relax and be confident? So I just have given up trying to predict, not that I ever did, I mean I tend to report, not predict, but I wouldn't do it now because you don't know what the historical event is going to be, you don't know what gremlins will be intensified by being in the White House. And that's why, if you get the book, you know, I'm really proud. I did this new essay on the relationship between the Bush father and son. And that gives you a really good insight into what I'm saying, which is you just don't know which gremlins are going to come out. So Maureen, when you started writing first about George Bush the first, and then the Clintons, could you ever have imagined that 20 or 25 years later, uh, you'd be writing about um, the latest coupling? And can you see yourself sticking around for George P. Bush and Chelsea Clinton? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, you know, there was a, a Clinton and a Bush in the White House for um, 28 years straight. And if Hillary had two terms, it wouldn't be straight, but it would be a total of 36 years. And it's... I guess a lot of this has to do with money, you know, that the same families get it because money is so hard to raise. But um, no, when George P. and Chelsea run against each other, I hope to be in Fiji. <laughs> or maybe a cocktail waitress at a Wyoming militia bar, but somewhere else. <laughs> well, I know that I speak for everybody when we say that we hope that when Chelsea P. Chelsea runs against George P. that you are still around covering it because there's nobody like you. Yes, I do. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92Yondemand.com dot org.